Thanks, Sarah. All right, good morning. My name is Chris, uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, we're journeying through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, before we get started, this is an opportunity for our kids uh, to be dismissed, K through third, and uh, you back that way. I see Pastor Justin back in that hallway, kind of heading out uh, that direction to the bookstore, and uh, they can make their way there for uh, kids' church during this time. Um, also, one other announcement that uh, I'd like to, to make as we, before we dig in here to the passage. Uh, we have next Sunday at 9 a.m. is uh, a, what is a, called a parent commissioning class. So if, uh, if you have little ones or soon-to-be uh, have little ones, uh, we have a class offered where we try to help equip uh, our parents uh, in preparation for uh, kind of um, shepherding and serving their children and pointing them to Jesus. And, uh, and we do actually a little commissioning service uh, in the coming weeks where we bring some parents up here and before our church family and just ask for, uh, we, they make a commitment to, to love their kids and serve them, and, uh, and we make a commitment as a church to, to follow up with them and support them and pray for them and help in any way we can. And so it's kind of a way for us at Parkside to come alongside each other. Parenting is hard work. Um, I, I know that firsthand, and, uh, and so it's, uh, it's always encouraging to have the family, the church family, come alongside of you. And so if, if that's your stage of life, you've got little ones or soon to be, uh, we'd love for you to come to that class. Uh, you can see Pastor Justin for more details about that next Sunday at 9 a.m. All right, so we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, kind of looking at portraits of Jesus. We're kind of skipping around a little bit, um, but uh, we're going to be in the passage that was just read. Let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, i uh, got to ask that you would help us, guide us, lead us uh, through this passage uh, as we study it. Uh, show, us, uh, show us Jesus. That's the ultimate uh, reason why we study the Word of God is to see you, um, to, be, to marvel at you, uh, to God walk out of this place equipped uh, in all of you to serve, love, and proclaim you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, well the world seems to be a mess. Uh, today, and the honest truth is that uh, it's only going get, to get messier uh, as time goes on. What we see happening around our country and around our world, uh, such as disease, famine, wildfires, hurricanes, earthquakes, racism, riots, um, all these different things, unfortunately, uh, are not going to get better, but according to Scripture and according to Jesus, they're actually only going to get worse. It used to be a um, a theological position, uh, you may not know this word, it's okay if you don't, um, but it used to be a theological position called post-millennialism. You're like, that'll win Scrabble every time, right? Uh, what does that mean? Uh, that is the, was the worldview of basically, or theological view, that we can, as a church, help usher in the kingdom of God. That died a long time ago, right? World War I hit and America stopped uh, thinking, uh, I don't think we're gonna, I don't think it's gonna get better, right? Uh, and that's, that's true. Jesus actually tells us that in the Gospel of Matthew that it is gonna get worse. He says this, Matthew 24, six through eight, says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines, earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And I know you sit there and go, well, thanks, Chris. That really warms my heart today. <laughs> it was already gloomy out and it was already kind of sad today. And now I guess add to all of this uh, as well. I know, I know life is heavy right now. And it's not just life in general is heavy. For many of us, it's a personal heaviness, right? We carry our own stuff. We carry the own, our own weight of pain and trouble and sorrow and anxiety on our own selves as well as the world in which we happen to live in and the weight of others, right? And so it's hard it's hard, but though, though times are hard, and as Jesus promised, it will get harder, it will not always be this way. 
The Bible forces us to face reality. That's what I love about the Bible. It doesn't sugarcoat, you know, what life is like. But at the same time, it infuses us with immense hope. Matthew's gospel ends with that hope by revealing to us not just the death of Jesus, but what? The, the resurrection of Jesus. And you go all the way to the very last verses of the gospel of Matthew, and Jesus' commission to us as his followers, giving us confidence and hope that he's with us every step of the way. Look what he says. It's the very ending of the book of Matthew, chapter 28, 19 to 20. It says, go, you know, make, therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Isn't that beautiful? What a, what a way to end the book, right? It, it ends with Jesus commissioning us out, saying, I am, I'm with you every step of the way. And we need to know that in every step that Jesus takes us on, on every step that we go, we will face opposition. It will be difficult. You know, think about the cross itself. When Jesus died, there was a, a lot of phenomenons that happened, happened around the cross that day, but one of them was that darkness covered the earth. And that, that wasn't God just kind of turning the lights off for a little bit to kind of make some effect. That, that was the kingdom of darkness, right? It was a, it was a personification of that. That was the, the fury of hell unloading everything it had against our Savior. And that same fury exists today. And both Satan and his, his demons are passionately opposed to the mission of God of making Jesus known and seeing churches planted and seeing people served. This is the second time in the Gospel of Matthew, that we will hit the subject and deal with Satan. We did that back in chapter 4. It's important that as we do this, you keep two things in mind, two truths. First, we don't want to disbelieve or underestimate the war that we are in. Okay? Uh, to borrow a line from the old film, Unusual Suspects, right? Uh, usual Suspects, actually. The greatest lie the devil ever told is that he doesn't exist, right? Second, we don't want to have an excessive and unhealthy interest in the spiritual war that we are in and be afraid of demons under every stone and every rock we turn to, right? We have to also understand the Bible affirms God's absolute sovereignty, right? He is in control. Satan is on a leash, as it were. You read the, read the book of Job and you'll see this, right? So as we study our text today, realize that Satan will use anything from circumstances to people from fear to anxiety to even prosperity and ease, whatever he can to get us off of mission, off of the purpose in which God has us here for. But as Jesus marches us forward and as we follow him and, and watch him in the Gospel of Matthew, specifically in this text, I want you to keep, we're going to look at three truths about this opposition. Number one, Jesus will lead us to face the kingdom of darkness. He will lead us that direction. It's important we understand that. Number two, the kingdom of darkness will oppose us to where Jesus leads us. Number three, Jesus will be victorious over the kingdom of darkness, right? Number one, Jesus will lead us to face the kingdom of darkness. Verse 28, so we pick it up. When he came to the other side, it says the country of the, the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now, prior to this text, and we, we, we didn't look at it today, but it's important that you know what's happening right before this. If you go up to verse 23 through 27, you'll see the story, maybe you're familiar with this, and where Jesus calms the storm. In that story, uh, the disciples are on a boat, and they're facing a storm of, we would maybe call it in today's terms, of hurricane proportion, okay? It's a massive storm. 
I imagine they're kind of channeling the, uh, their best, best uh, Red Fox uh, performers from Sanford and Sons. This is dating me a little bit, right? Clenching this chest. Oh, Lordy, this is the big one, right? This is, we're going down. This is over. Um, and, and we'll, but here's the, the thing about that story. What was more terrifying than the storm itself was the fact that Jesus stood on the boat and looked out and goes, shh. And he goes, it just stops, right? That was more terrifying to them, so much so they couldn't figure out, they tried to put Jesus, they tried to figure out a category for him. They asked themselves, what kind of man is this? Like, this isn't, this is different, okay? They couldn't fit him into a category. Anything they've ever seen or known by any person could do something like this, okay? So, so they're, in the, they're coming off of that. That's what has just happened in the text. And I imagine now the disciples in our text are kind of uh, rowing their way back to shore, okay? And, and what is now a quiet and clear night. The moon reflecting off the Sea of Galilee. They're trying to, you know, start to catch their breath. I imagine they emerge on the shoreline from the boats completely drenched uh, like a clouder of wet cats. I looked up that term. That's a new one for me, a clouder of wet cats. And, um, and then they, they, they sloth, slosh out of the boats onto the shore. I imagine they probably like kiss the shoreline like Sandra Bullock in, uh, in Gravity, right? Like in just grabbing the shoreline, just kissing the shore thinking we thought we'd never see this again. <laughs> and they're there and they're just exhausted and they're tired. And as they emerge from the water, from the boat, they, under the cover of darkness, Jesus leads them, okay? In the text, now the disciples aren't noted, but there the other, their other gospels, Matthew is one, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Mark and Luke actually record the story as well and add the disciples are with Jesus. He's not alone. Uh, they are with him in the background of the story. So Jesus leads them down this, this old road. Uh, if, you, if I was them, you're probably imagining to yourself, uh, expecting to go find some shelter, maybe get a change of clothes, right? A well-deserved uh, nap in. Their defenses start to lighten. Nerves start to calm down. Shoulders start to slouch in fatigue. They figure they're going to sleep under the stars, which wouldn't be unusual for them. Um, they probably start to scope out what's the best rock to use as a pillow to kind of just get some sleep. Um, and that's what they were doing. I imagine if I was one of the disciples with them, I'd be scoping out, not a rock, but I'd be trying to find a hotel room, right? Trying to find, I'm sure there's a Motel 6 in the horizon, guys, let's keep going, right? That's what I would do, but that's just me. But as, but as they walk, they start to wonder why it's taking so long to find a place to crash. And they begin to notice, the, path, the, the text tells us, they begin to notice the path is different. This path they're on is, is overgrown, Usually paths that were well-traveled on or are well-traveled on would be just dirt, right? With little chance of any of the occasional weed or strip of grass to pop up. They probably think nothing of that, right? They just want a place to lay their heads. It's been a long day. But in the shadows, okay, on the right and on the left, they start to see objects emerge in the darkness, the moonlight. They look like uh, large rocks leaning up against holes that have been carved into the side of the hills. Jesus slows down. And he stops at this point. Disciples choose maybe which rock they're going to you know, sleep up against, lean up against. And as they lean into the darkness, squinting with their eyes, they realize that these aren't just rocks. <laughs> these are tombs. And in the distance, they hear the snorting of pigs in the distance. They realize they are in Gentilehood right now, okay? They are on the quote-unquote quote other side of the tracks. They're, they're in a place that they don't want to be in. They're very uncomfortable. Uh, this is a very weird situation, but they just want to get some sleep. They probably thought, okay, oh, well, well, we're just tired. We'll sleep anywhere. We'll get up in the morning. We'll get out of here first thing in the morning. Graveyards, while creepy, we'll work. Let's just get some sleep. And I imagine a few of the disciples, okay, this is kind of my 
hopefully sanctified imagination here, right? Start to wring out their clothes, you know, from the wet, hang them up a little bit on the rocks. Um, and as, as they do that, they, they start to kind of maybe just begin to fall asleep. And as the text says, they, they get startled. And all of a sudden, two dudes come screaming and yelling, running out of the caves, right? Carved into the side of the hills. Matthew's term, I think is interesting. Matthew's word he uses for their yelling is the word actually unintelligible screaming, you imagine, middle of the night, darkness, you're already, I mean, the, the night you just had was excruciating, right, with the storm and everything. You just want to nap, you're about to fall asleep, and you hear unintelligible screaming, all right, coming from, from inside these caves, and two men come running out. I mean, the poor hearts of the disciples had just calmed down from the aerobic zone, right? They were just, just about to get calmed down, and now, poof, they're back up again uh, with these guys. The other Gospels tell us, taking Mark and Luke's account together, tell us that, they are, that this road is not one that's traveled on anymore. We can see that from this text, too, and we understand why, given these two characters hiding out in the tombs. Uh, they're, they're ruling the place. Uh, they are like a menace to society. Everyone is afraid of them. Uh, they are so violent that the text tells us it made it impossible for people to use this road anymore. Right? No one came down this road anymore. They're terrified. Now, the question I have to ask is why? Why? Would Jesus lead them down this road? <laughs> Why would he lead them to this place? Clearly, the text says that, that Jesus did do this. Matthew, again, just mentions Jesus, but Luke tells us the disciples are with him. So why would Jesus lead them to the graveyard on the other side of the tracks, as it were, in the middle of the night to encounter two very angry, violent, demon-possessed men? I mean, is he just being cruel here, right? Is this... Uh, is he just having a little fun with them? Like, is this like Indie Screen Park going on here? Like, what is happening? Why would he take them to this place? And the answer is the same reason why he led them out onto a boat knowing the storm was coming at the same time. It's the same answer. It was all part of his plan, all right? He was discipling them. He was taking them right into the teeth of hell on earth. He's training them to be his disciples and to look evil right in the eye and not back down because the commission he will give them later that we read already in Matthew 28 is going to mean that it's going to get hard. It's not going to be easy. Jesus is teaching them to also care for people that no one else cared for. We saw that with the leper last time, right? He's teaching them that this is a different kind of person, but still we would call a marginalized person, meaning they're on the margins of society. They're not in the mainstream, okay? The leper was outside. These two guys obviously are outside. Jesus is teaching them the kind of people he wants them to, to look for. And so as he does that, Mark also tells us these guys, uh, interestingly enough, Mark tells us these guys were cutters. They would use rocks to carve up their bodies, right? And so you can imagine, I mean, they're probably bleeding Right? They have bruises all over their body. I mean, it's a very scary scene that they've walked into. And let's not forget that back in Matthew 4, which we saw, before Jesus began his ministry, the Holy Spirit of God, it says, led him into the desert to face Satan. Right? Led him. And that same Holy Spirit would lead the disciples later on in the book of Acts to face the same darkness, the same, to face the same opposition. And the same Holy Spirit today that's in believers is leading us to face the same thing. Jesus is showing them what it means to follow him. He's not avoiding conflict. He's not avoiding difficulty. He's walking right into the face of it, and he's taking his disciples along with him. Proverbs uh, 16, 9, 9 says, the heart of a man plans his ways, right? We, we have our plans. We usually involves no opposition, <laughs> no conflict. Let's, let's avoid that path. 
And yet it says also the Lord establishes his steps. Meaning like we can have our plans, but many times God's going to move ourselves right into the face of opposition a lot of times. Those steps uh, happen that way. And you say, you may say, you know what, Chris, I don't, I don't like that. I agree with you. <laughs> okay? I, don't, I don't like it either. But Jesus never promised, and this is important for you to know, especially if you're a new believer or if you're not a believer and you're trying to figure out what Christianity and Jesus and all this stuff is, it's important that you understand Jesus never promised to make life easy. Never promised it would be easy or free from opposition. Actually, he said just the opposite. He'll say later in the Gospel of Matthew for us to follow him and to do so is to take up a cross. Okay, that's not a, a necklace, earring, or anything like that. That was a brutal means of execution. Take up your cross and die daily and follow me. That doesn't sound easy, right? Doesn't sound easy at all. We live in a culture that says avoid conflict Avoid trouble like the plague, right? Stay safe, stay secure. There's nothing wrong with, with, with trying to do that. We're wearing masks, many of us. Like, I mean, that's nothing wrong with trying to do that, but that's not, our, that's not our mission in life. A lot of our culture tells us don't concern yourself with the pains of others, just concern yourself about your own. But again, when I read the Bible, it doesn't say that. Our cultural values of personal comfort, safety, and security um, is always valued over hardship of serving and loving others, especially if it costs us something. But as Christians, we value Jesus and we value others, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's our values. And we need to know that Jesus leads us to places and to make this, it makes decisions in our life and moves us in a way that won't always bring comfort, safety, and security. So as a church, we, we are making decisions that, to further the gospel. We're making decisions to serve people. We're making a decision to plant churches, not because it's easy or safe, but because we're following Jesus, right? Know that as you push outside of your comfort zone, as you engage people with the gospel and risk rejection, as you care for the outcasts and the marginalized and only get thanklessness in return, as you sacrifice your time, talent, and treasure for the kingdom of God, know that Jesus is not leading you to face the kingdom of darkness alone. Remember in our text here, our disciples alone? No, I love Matthew doesn't even mention they're even there. <laughs> it's Jesus leading. And who, does, who deals with these two men? Jesus does, right? They're just there with him. The Holy Spirit of God is leading you who are believers to face hardship and opposition, but he is also staying with you during all of that time. God is not trying to hide his people from the kingdom of darkness, but using them to bring light to the darkness. That's why early on in Matthew 5, he actually called his people to be a collectively a city on a hill, light of the world, right, to light up the darkness that is there. And friends, God's will for your life is not to be led down some cushy road where life always makes sense and life is always easy. But come face to face with the kingdom of darkness as you share your faith, as you care for the broken, and as you serve in his kingdom. All right, number two. The kingdom of darkness will oppose us. So, so number one, Jesus is gonna lead us, okay, to face it. That's important for us to know. There's a version of Christianity out there that says Jesus doesn't lead you to opposition. He leads you to health, wealth, and prosperity. Okay, it's, it's not in the Bible, okay? But as, we, as he leads us to it, we need to know that we will face opposition as he leads us there. So verse 29, behold, they, these two men, cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So we need to know that Jesus, as Jesus leads us to face the kingdom of darkness, that Satan and his minions are not gonna back down. They aren't going to cower. They aren't going to hide just because you say Jesus or you believe in Jesus or love Jesus, right? Notice in the passage here that these two demon-possessed men don't hightail it when they figure out who Jesus is. 
Matter of fact, they, they approach him. And they actually ask questions to him. They recognize his authority. That's very interesting, isn't it? They recognize what he has the power to do. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They, they know their future. And they know what he has the power to do. But they literally, the language here is, is the language that they say to Jesus is all, all it says is this. What to us and you? That's what they say. You say, what is that? That's fighting words. <laughs> you want to go? That's kind of what they said to Jesus. Like, you want to go? We, we can go. You want to go? Um, it's important we know that. Before coming to Jesus, any fight that you were involved in ultimately was with God himself. If you're apart from Jesus, that is the war that you are in. And when you repent and you turn to Jesus, understand it doesn't turn you over to like an easy road. You actually cross over enemy lines, as it were, and now you have a different opposition, right? You, you awaken. If you've come to Christ, you know this. You kind of lights come on. You awaken to a fight outside of you. The Bible calls that the world. You awaken to a fight within you. The Bible calls that the, the flesh. And you awaken to a fight that is upon you. It's called the devil. Now, with Jesus, you have grace, right? You have hope. You have power. But nonetheless, it is a site of conflict and war because the kingdom of darkness is not happy. Listen to how Paul puts in Ephesians 2. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carried the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right? That, is, that is the awakening that took place. 1 John 5, 19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's going to be difficult, right? This means life won't be easy most of the time. Most of the time, it will be hard. And the quicker we grasp that truth, the quicker you will have the right perspective to handle life. Some of us are shocked that we face opposition, right? But opposition is going to be present until Jesus returns. If you don't face opposition, be thankful for that at the moment. It will not always last. Um, there's lots of stories. I was telling uh, Pastor Jared this last, last Sunday. There's lots of stories, and I could sit up here and tell you lots of stories about my time in Los Angeles. And I moved there uh, to plant churches, and we were there for, for, for many years, and, um, and we're planting churches. And, and so it was, uh, in moving there, I didn't think much of spiritual opposition. Didn't think much of Satan. I was like, yeah, I know he exists. He's out there doing something, but doesn't have anything to do with me. Well, I was forced to rethink that idea, okay, uh, practically speaking, um, in both the natural and the supernatural realm. Now, I'm, I'm, it, was, it was sort of crazy with that. I remember one Sunday, I had a guy, as I was preaching, right, it was kind of a middle aisle open, and he was in the back, and he was pacing like a line in a cage, you know, back and forth. He was visibly upset. So after it's over, he comes up to me and tells me how he's upset, didn't like what I had to say. Um, and uh, didn't like what the Bible had to say, and uh, was very upset. And so he, he left, and one of our guys took him, uh, was giving him a ride somewhere. And this is what I find out later, right? The next day, um, I find this out. I, I get a call from one of my guys, Jesse. He had driven this guy. He said, hey, can you drop me off at this, uh, this, this place? I need to run in and get something real quick. So he drops him off, you know. He runs inside. Jesse's waiting outside in the car, you know, and just sitting there. And he's a fairly new believer himself. He's like, oh, I'm serving people. This is great. And he says, all of a sudden, the guy comes bolting out of the door, jumps in the passenger side and says, go. <laughs> Jesse's like, okay. <laughs> Starts driving. And the guy pulls out a gun and uh, it says, drive. And then, so Jesse's driving. Jesse drives himself over to the Hollywood police station. <laughs> and, uh, 
and says, hey, man, you need some help. Like, he's like, well, I just shot somebody. I just killed somebody. He's like, you need to take me somewhere else. He goes, you just need to wait here. I'm going to get you some help. And so he said, I opened the door, and I jetted inside the police station. When I got in the police station, I told the guys, hey, I got a guy in the car that just shot somebody. Um, we need to come help, you know. And by the time they got outside and got, you know, of course, he'd opened a door and jetted, ran for it. Um, we found out the next day with the news. It was like, oh, he went into a club that was closed for the day and shot somebody, killed somebody in there, found out he was Snoop Dogg's bodyguard. I'm like, great, that's awesome. He was in church that day with two guns, very visibly upset in the very back of the auditorium. I'm like, well, I'm glad he was upset later, right? I mean, it was, it was difficult. I, I, I remember in being there, um, having, I mean, would have horrific dreams, um, severe depression at times, written and verbal attacks. Uh, seemed like a, literally a false teacher would show up every Sunday to church. Every Sunday, we call it the, it was, off a, it was a show called Smallville at, some, at one point, and they called it the Freak of the Week, the new crazy person that showed up. So every week, it was like, oh, the Freak of the Week is here, another false teacher, get out of here, man. I mean, one time, a guy came with, had the word pastor, whatever his name was, embroidered onto his shirt, walking around to all the new people, because I had a bunch of new, new believers, unbelievers, and he's walking around going, telling people he's the pastor. You're like, seriously, dude, get, get out of here, right? What are you doing? Um, but it was like crazy stuff happening all the time. I had one, one of my guys actually, um, it was probably the most traumatic event while I was there. I'm, I'm, pre- I'm literally about to preach one day. This is why I manuscript my sermons. This is one of the reasons I do this. I'm about to preach and um, right when I start, uh, one of the pastors walks up to the right here and just whispers in my ear, like right, like right now, like this will be happening, and tells me that Phil has died. And Phil was one of our, one of our guys, and he was recovering kind of um, an addiction, different things, and he said he died, and says, you need to go. And I'm like, okay, here's a sermon. <laughs> you go ahead. So other pastors just know that I may do that sometime. That's why it's written. It's right here. Um, but anyway, I, I went out, and it was like, it was horrific. Like, he had jumped from his window, his apartment. Um, I'm like, it was like a, it was just the war zone. I had people from the church that were like, didn't know how to process it, right? So they were crying. His parents showed up. They were obviously upset. And I'm dealing with the, the LAPD and the coroner's group as well. I mean, it was, it was like a disaster. And then they say, hey, you need to clean up the blood. Tell me to do that. This is LAPD. Like, you go clean it up. I'm like, I got to clean this up. So I get two guys to go in the back, grab some bleach, come out, you know, clean the blood off the street uh, that's out there. And I mean, it just was completely traumatic. But these are the kind of things that would always kind of seem to go on right? Family, uh, bizarre illnesses I can't begin to, to, to list. I remember one time I was, during this time, I went home to see my dad because he wasn't doing well. He died when I was like 30, 31, 32 of a drug overdose. And, um, and I remember going home to visit him and I'm sitting in his garage, I'm sitting downstairs in his basement and I'm always talking to my dad about Jesus, right? Because I knew this is, he's not doing well. And I'm sitting there, it's me and him and his drunk friend who's like out of his mind, trying to have a conversation about the gospel. If you ever try to talk someone drunk with the gospel. It's a very weird conversation. So I'm sitting there talking, and as we're talking, his phone starts ringing. Like the, this is like the old house phone, like on the wall. It starts ringing, and it won't stop ringing. It just keeps ringing. Someone keeps calling, calling. So I'm trying to, every time I, like, like, I felt like every time I said Jesus, ring, like it would ring. And so I'm sitting there talk, I'm talking to him, and all of a sudden he, uh, he goes, you know what, this is driving me crazy. He goes over, rips the thing off the wall, and throws it on the ground. Sits back down. He goes, no, tell me what you were telling me. I'm like, okay. So let's get back in. Start talking about Jesus. I, I, I'm not trying to be crazy here, but the phone started ringing again on the floor with no cord in the wall, right? And my dad looks at me. Of course, his drunk friend got sober really fast. It was like, what's going on? And my dad's like, I, I, I think you're trying to tell me something that someone doesn't want me to hear. I'm like, yes, you think so? Like, this is what's happening. 
But these are the kind, I mean, this happens. And it's not always, understand, the opposition is always supernatural. Those are rare instances. But there is an opposition that you will face as you follow Jesus and as you seek to live on mission. Satan is active out there. This is not a, something that kind of maybe happens somewhere else. It happens in our homes. It happens in our church. It happens in our town. It happens in the city around here. It happens everywhere. Some of you are new believers. You need to know that when you come to Jesus, it's not a cakewalk, Okay. You don't come to Jesus to make your life better. Many of you could stand up here with me and go like, yeah, I came to Jesus and life got worse. <laughs> life got harder, okay? It's not, he's not there to make life easy. He's there to be with you, to walk with you, to transform you and use you, but it's gonna be difficult. Paul said this, he said, 1 Thessalonians 2.18, I wanted to come to you, I right, Paul again and again, but Satan hindered us, right? He understood that opposition that he was facing. Listen, Satan will tempt you to doubt God's word, to doubt God's goodness, Without God's wisdom, he'll try to deceive you as well as lie to you, try to distract you from devotion to Jesus. He'll come after you in very, even possibly very physical ways. Think of the book of Job. He can mess with your health, your family, your job. Throughout the gospel accounts, we see Satan involved in things and demons causing people at that time to be blind or mute or have epileptic like seizures, back pain, arthritis, all kinds of elements physically are going on. Add to that the persecution element. He was very involved in the whole situation. It'll also bring accusations against you, right? Thoughts that come into your head of uh, God doesn't love me, right? That you'll never be good enough. Lead you to wallow in guilt, especially false guilt. Anything to keep you off advancing the gospel. Wants to get your eyes off Jesus' perfect performance and onto your failed performance, right? That's a very good tactic. Um, this is especially true, uh, having worked in the world of addiction, right? If, you, if you're, working in, if you're um, suffering, working through, like recovering and drugs or alcohol or trying to fight uh, to break a bad habit, right? He can get you to idolize your sobriety or your, your track record, and then when you fail, it, like, it all falls apart, right? It all falls apart. I've seen it over and over. Your identity, my friends, is in Jesus and his performance, not your sobriety or consecutive days of personal victories, Okay? It's in Jesus. Seek to get you to believe false things about God. The Bible calls it false teaching. It's a very real thing out there. He will use people who claim to be Christians, who claim to be using the Bible. Throw cults at you, heretics at you, false teachers at you, smiling so-called Christian teachers at you, anything to keep you off of loving Jesus and off of the mission that God has called you to. Remember, everything that glitters is not gold, okay? Um, we're in a real war. That's why we need wisdom. We talk about the wisdom challenge we're doing, right? That's why we need that. Revelation 12, 17 says, the dragon became furious. It's a personification of Satan. Furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you hold to the testimony of Jesus and strive to keep the commandments of God. That passage says that he has declared war on us. Okay, it's gonna be difficult. Satan found a way to get to Peter, right? He got to Judas, Try to tear down the church before it ever even started in Acts chapter 5. Um, we're going to face opposition, right? We need to get ready for that. But, okay, we're not going to leave you there. Last point this morning. Jesus will be victorious over the kingdom of darkness. Now, down in verse 30, we begin to see that they requested to go into some pigs. Very interesting, maybe strange story to you. And it, they found some, you know, some herd of pigs in the distance. Verse 31, if you cast us out, send us into herd of pigs. He said, and they, I love Jesus, said go. And they came out, went to the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Um, it was a suey dive, right? Instead of a swan dive, suey dive, get it? Suey, suey dive. I thought that was funny. Um, 
So these demons realize that Jesus has absolute authority and, have, and they have little doubt that he can and will do whatever he wants with them. And because demons are good theologians. They know the Bible very well. Uh, they understand Jesus' absolute sovereignty. Listen to Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. You're the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. Right? They, they understood that power. They understood that authority. So they request to be cast into pigs. And Jesus orders them. And I love the statement. Jesus used one word, go. <laughs> and you know what they did? They go, right? <laughs> they went. They, they got out of there quickly. And it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like they were um, um, screaming, you know, resisting like, you know, witches being boiled in oil or something, you know, like kind of a high-pitched scream. And Jesus doesn't have to grab them and be like, get out of there and stop your shenanigans, right? He doesn't do that. They just go, right? They immediately obey because that's what they have to do. And they just, they left. They left the two men. And my friends, that, that power over Satan, which we see in our text here, has been demonstrated throughout the Bible. And it's important that we understand that, um, that understanding. From Genesis to Revelation, there's an old Latin word, throw a Latin phrase at you here, called Christus Victor. Basically, it's a Latin word. English, it means Jesus wins, okay? It means Jesus wins. And think about this for a second. Number one, Satan attempted to hinder the incarnation of Jesus, meaning Jesus being born. But Jesus was born, right? Think about all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Satan, after being cast out of heaven, was on a mission to keep the mission from, of God from going forward. And he did it, with, he strove to do that with Adam and Eve, didn't he? We see him show up right at the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. And while Satan thought he had a victory in getting them to, persuading them, tempting them to sin, he thought he had the victory, he actually served to set the rescue mission going, didn't he? Listen to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking of Satan and the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Right? From this moment on, Satan knew that one of Eve's children would be the rescuer, someone of his, her, her offspring. He didn't know who. He didn't know when it would happen. But he knew he had to do everything in his power to stop it from happening. So he tried to do that. It wasn't long that the Bible just goes right in the next chapter, right? Chapter 4, we find Cain do what? Kill his brother. Satan was very involved in that, by the way. Listen to Genesis 4, 7. Sin is crouching at the door. This is God speaking to Cain. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. Many scholars believe that the sin here described as a lion crouching at the door is, a, is really a, a picture of not just sin, but, but Satan himself at work. It wasn't too long after this, Genesis chapter 6. <laughs> He's involved again, right? The whole world becomes corrupt at that moment. We see in Genesis, Jacob and his family endure a famine, attempted murder of Joseph till, till Joseph saves the whole lineage from that. We see Satan at work in the Exodus with the Egyptians where God rescues his people. Even the time of the kings, at one point in the kings, they're down to one guy, one boy left in the line of David for the promise. And God spares that one, right? Satan's trying to get everyone, kill everyone off. Throughout the time of the prophets, Satan continued to work hard to corrupt and end the line. And yet, though through sin, and yet, through failure, God would preserve the line so that Jesus would be born. And even after Jesus was born, right? Go read early parts of Matthew and Luke. Even after Jesus was born, within two years, what happened? Herod tried to kill all the boys of his age, right? They had to flee to Egypt. I mean, opposition happened just, just exactly at that time. And yet, no matter how hard Satan tried, he couldn't stop the mission of God. He couldn't stop Jesus from being born. Number two, Satan attempted to ruin the life of Jesus, but Jesus never sinned. 
At the time of Jesus' life, Satan had been, understand the setting, had been pushing religion really hard, not gospel. Those are two different things, by the way. People had bought the lie that they were pretty decent. And all they needed was a little help, a little work, maybe do a little bit of good, um, give a little bit of money, and they'd be right with God, and God would be their pal and be on their side, and it would work out great. It's into this culture Jesus walked, and that's why the religious people hated him, because he told them there was nothing they could do to be made right with God, that they weren't good. And Satan had the religious people hungry, not for a savior, but for a king. They, were, they liked Jesus for a little bit. Oh, he's going to be our king. He's going to kick out the Romans. And they realized he wasn't going to do that. They didn't like him anymore. And thus, Satan would make it difficult for Jesus' whole life, especially from these religious people. It wouldn't take long before Satan himself would step up, right? We already read this. Matthew 4, he faced opposition right there in the, in the, in the desert scene. He tried to get Jesus to quit, tried to get Jesus to give up. He offered him a kingdom without a cross, which we talked about. That, that kingdom, if he would have accepted it without the cross, it would have left us completely out of the deal, right? We needed the cross to save us. But unlike you and me, Jesus didn't fold under pressure. He resisted every temptation thrown at him. Satan would try to work an inside job on a few of Jesus' followers. First, he gets to Peter, the leader. And when he couldn't get him to turn Jesus over, he found his man, right? Who did he find? He found Judas. And he found his man there, and Satan tried every trick in the book. He stirred up the religious people and the crowds to kill Jesus. And yet through all of that, Jesus never sinned, never Instead, the Bible says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, to die for our sins. It's exactly what he did. He died a perfect substitute, without blemish, without sin. Number three, Satan attempted to destroy the power of Jesus, but Jesus rose victorious. Even though Satan couldn't prevent the incarnation of Jesus, and he, he couldn't get Jesus to fail, he couldn't get Jesus to sin, couldn't affect the perfection of Jesus, he continued to go after him at his death. Jesus faced the onslaught of Satan like no one in the history of the world, and Satan unleashed everything he had on him. Matter of fact, Jesus even called it his hour. Listen to Luke twenty-two fifty-three. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. This is speaking to religious people. But this is your hour and the power of darkness, right? The power of darkness is at work in this hour. Even at the cross, we talked about earlier, darkness hovered over for the last three hours. We have no idea the amount of torment, both physically and emotionally, that Jesus went through. I told you this many times. Remember when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father turned his back on his boy, right? Turned his back on his son. Why? Because he became sin for us. All the wrath, wrath deserved for us was poured out onto Jesus. And no doubt, I can imagine at that scene that no doubt Jesus, Satan is telling Jesus his father didn't love him anymore, that his father had abandoned him, that he was his now, right? He was crushing not just his body, but piercing his heart. But Jesus knew, he said it over and over again, he knew deep down the father wasn't gonna leave him like that, he would say. He's gonna glorify me. He's gonna resurrect me. Um, at first, if you look at the cross, it seems that Jesus is hanging his head in defeat as he dies and Satan is the winner. And Satan, through the works of man and his demons, had blasphemed, beaten, spit, mocked, stripped naked, crucified the Lord of glory. Satan, as it were, had hoisted up the mangled body of Jesus for the world to see and proclaim victory. The crowd cheered, right? Demons were in a, an uproar. Creation kind of holds its breath in shock. And Satan and his demons didn't know that they'd only served God's purposes once again. What they meant for evil... God meant for good, right? All of that was all part of the plan to set the mission to, to set captives free and destroy the one who held them captive. John 12, 31, Jesus said, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. 
1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus triumphed over Satan with that twist of irony, right? What Satan thought was his success was actually his failure. What he thought was his triumph was actually his downfall. What he thought was his victory was his defeat. Lastly, number four, Satan attempted to overthrow the kingdom of Jesus, but Jesus reigns forever. Jesus reigns forever. You would think at this point in the story, as the Bible unfolds, I'm kind of giving you a big theology here of this, that as the Bible unfolds, Satan would be like, all right, I'm done. I quit. I lose. I get it. You got to at least admire his resilience, right? He keeps at it. He keeps going. And so ever since the resurrection of Jesus, Satan has been going hard after the church, after the people of God. But he also knows he's defeated. And now what was promised in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve has come true for Jesus, will ultimately come true for us. Romans 16, 20 says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And then the future judgment is described like this. Revelation 12, 20, verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then Philippians 2 tells us Jesus will return and there will be a future of no more opposition. Look how, how Philippians puts it. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth, under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But you need to know that all this is possible, all right, because God did what he promised. He sent his son as a rescuer who didn't come as ultimate, ultimate fighter Jesus, right? Clear the deck, clear the house, get everyone, wipe everybody out, right? Fight everybody. He came as a baby, the most helpless creature in all of God's creation. He wasn't born to a king and queen, but to a teenage boy and girl. He wasn't born in a high-class, prestigious city like Jerusalem, where the wise men thought he was going to be. Instead, he was born in a hodunk town of Bethlehem. He wasn't raised in the arts and education and battle training of the Greeks and Romans. He was raised as a blue-collar carpenter's son in a no-name town called Nazareth. He didn't own a thing the last three years of his life. He lived on borrowed money, stayed at borrowed homes at times, lived under the stars, slept under the stars. He rode into town his last week of his life on a borrowed donkey, he ate his last meal in a borrowed room, and guys, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Didn't have anything. No wonder people didn't think much of him. <laughs> And even when he demonstrated his power and even when he served the community like he did in these two guys in the story, it tells us at the very end of this passage what happened. He served. He set these two guys free. He helped even, he even served the community by doing this, right? He opened up a pathway for them to go through now because they were scared to go. And what happened? The people in town came out and said what? Get out of here. We don't want you. As the story develops, Judea will reject him. Galilee will cast him out. Gadarene begs him to leave the district, right? Samaria won't let him go through. Nazareth tries to kill him. Earth will not have him, and heaven ends up turning his back on him. He would go all through all of that to save us. And this victory of Jesus over sin, death, hell, and Satan himself has been accredited to you not because you are good, but because you have repented and turned to the one who is good. On the cross, Jesus took your rap sheet. He nailed it to the cross with his body and gave you his perfect rap sheet, right? His perfect reputation. He wiped out the old boss, as it were. He threw him down, defeated him, and changed him and set us free. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. I'll leave you with this. says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt 
that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's Satan and his demons, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We need to know that as, as we face opposition, and we will face more, okay, and as we seek to follow Jesus and, and making him known and serving people, planting churches, all the things that we're, we're doing and going to be doing, that the old saying, right, I read the back of the book and Jesus wins, okay? <laughs> he wins. In the meantime, Satan will bite, doesn't have any teeth, as it were, right? He'll try to pull you away, but he doesn't have the strength. He'll tempt you to no end, and he will win some battles, but my friends, he will not win the war, okay? So we go to communion those who follow, who are followers of Jesus today, as you take time in a moment here just to reflect on this victory of Christ and the opposition that, that you're both facing now and in preparation for what you will face, okay? And as you reflect on that, as you think about that, we're going to take the bread and the juice and the little cups right there in front of you in the pew there. We'll take those as bread and juice. We remember, we do it in remembrance of Jesus, of his body being broken for us, his blood being poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. And we take a moment of quiet here and just kind of talk to Jesus. So lay before him your burdens, right? He has said, come to me, all you who are weary and what? Heavy, laden, and I'll give you rest, right? I give you some rest, right? I'll give you rest. Lay those burdens down before him, right? Ask him to, to as he leads you, that you would follow him closely. You wouldn't run away, right, from the opposition, the darkness that God wants to lead you into and to help face you want, to, you, want to, you want to follow Jesus in that way. So let's take the opportunity to reflect on that. As you're ready, if you're ready, you may take that, um, that cup and that bread, and then we'll, uh, we'll sing here to conclude our service. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word. Thank you. I love the fact uh, that the Bible just is, it's real. Um, it's real. Uh, it doesn't try to fool us into a, some kind of world that's nice and easy and safe. Uh, it very much shows us Jesus, you walk this earth, that you face a tremendous amount of opposition, and we will face the same. Um, God, I ask that you would help us to follow you closely. A lot of times we're very willing to follow you when life is easy, um, but God, when life gets difficult, we don't know the answers, we're unsure of our future or even our next step, um, we have a trouble following closely. We want to stay behind. But God, we have to realize as we follow you that the best place in the world always the best place in the world is in the will of God. It's following you, Jesus, even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, even if it doesn't make sense. I pray, God, for those here who may not know you, God, that you would bring them to yourself, you would show them the work that you've done on their behalf and wake them up. God, open their eyes to see the beauty of the cross, the beauty of our Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.